this is a continuation of our trek there, the series, as you know now, called Life Lessons from the Holy Land. We don't want to go to the Holy Land as an end in itself. We want to go there uh, as, so as to derive a practical life, life lesson by which to live. So tonight we're journeying to a place called Chorazin. Chorazin is a city, more accurately a village, uh, located on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's about two and a half miles from another small fishing village you probably know of called Capernaum. Chorazin was quite a prominent locale during the time of the Lord's earthly ministry here. Uh, but today, if you went there, you would be going through a, a, a succession of ruins. It, it extends itself for about 25 acres. You see, since the third century, uh, Chorazin has been uninhabited. It's the place today only of archaeological exploration. And the archaeologists over the years have unearthed some marvelous structures, most of which consist of a particular rock called basalt, which is a dark kind of a stone, uh, fairly common to the area. It's volcanic in composition, and you see many, many things in the Holy Land built out of dark basalt. Uh, one of the most interesting things I think that the archaeologists have unearthed is something called the seat or chair of Moses. You'll see some pictures of it as we uh, go through this little lecture tonight. The seat of Moses is a significant piece of stonework usually located near a synagogue. And in fact, the archaeologists found a synagogue here at Chorazin. It was destroyed in the third century, probably by an earthquake. But what remains is this seat or chair of Moses. It's the one on which the leader of a synagogue or the expositor of scripture would sit. They wouldn't stand, they would sit. Sometimes the listeners would be the ones who would be standing while the teacher sat. Want to try it? <laughs> so uh, uh, they found this chair of Moses there. And do you know it's mentioned in scripture, not I don't think this very one, but one like it. Let me just read it to you. It's in Matthew 23, and it simply says this. Then Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. That's all I want to call to your attention now. This object existed. Again, uh, the leader of the synagogue or even the visiting teacher the visiting rabbi uh, would sit on it as he exposed people uh, to the word of God. I think it's quite fascinating because there is a very distinct possibility that the Lord Jesus himself sat on that very seat or chair of Moses, uh, which has been located here at Chorazin. When we visit there, there are only ruins and the seat of Moses in every single person I know of has taken his or her turn in sitting on it. You'll see pictures to that extent as you uh, look at the screen. 
Chorazin is mentioned in the entire New Testament only two times by two gospel writers, Matthew and Luke, in partnership with two other cities, uh, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. And both gospel writers, when they mention Chorazin, do not do so in complementary terms. Oh no, they mention Chorazin and the other two cities in a fairly negative way. You see, it was in these three cities that the Lord himself performed majestic, miraculous works, manifold times. And yet, in spite of all that, the residents of all three cities rejected him as Messiah, as deliverer, as savior. And as a result of the rejection of him, a, a very severe consequence befell all three cities. We can read about it in Matthew chapter 11. So here, I would like for you to join me if you don't mind. Matthew chapter 11. Help yourself to a Bible in front of you if you don't have one of your own. Matthew chapter 11. Any translation will do. And in Matthew chapter 11, we'll pick up at verse 20. Just a few verses. Matthew 11 verse 20. Then he, that's the Lord, began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Then he began to denounce. Denunciation was not the starting point of his ministry. You know what was? Mercy was the starting point of his ministry. He began things with a gracious message of mercy. But when his message of mercy was refused, then, as the text says, he began to denounce. And he did so, as the text says, because they did not repent. It's a familiar word, repent, repentance, repentant. But we ought not gloss over it. Since failure to repent was the basis of his denunciation of these cities, we ought to think about it, lest we be denounced for failure to repent as well. It's not complicated. It's fairly simple. The word means to turn, to change. In this case, to change your response to this Jesus. You could respond to him as if he's one of many religious leaders. That's not right. You could respond to him as if he's an option. That's not right. You could respond to him as if he is merely a good teacher. That is not right. You could think of him as simply another term for, oh, Allah. That is not right. You could respond to him as if he's irrelevant to your life. Oh, that is really not right. To repent is to come to him as you are, a sinner, and as he is, the Savior. That's what repentance is. It is to come to him as you are, a sinner, and in light of who he is, the Savior. To repent is to no longer live independent of him. To repent is to yield 
to submit to him as Savior and as Lord. The people in these three cities, you see, did not repent. To repent is to give him, it's simple, it's to give him his rightful place. They did not. Do you mind me asking this question which you have to answer? Are you giving him his rightful place? Please settle the matter uh, before we take leave of one another this evening. Are you giving this Jesus his rightful place? They did not. What about you? The people in Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum did not repent. They were cities of enormous privilege. They were Jewish cities. Galilean Jewish cities. Populated primarily by privileged Jewish people. They were cities, don't you see, in which most of the Lord's miraculous work was manifested. Yet they did not repent. They marveled, for sure, at what he did. And yet they ignored what he said. The works he performed were meant to be a backdrop for the words he proclaimed. They enjoyed the works, but they rejected his words. They did not repent, you see. They did not come as they were, sinners, to him. As he is the Savior. So this Christ, this Messiah came into the world to bless them, to bless us. But if that blessing is rejected, then he has woes and denunciation in store for us. Look at it. Verse 21. Woe to you, Chorazin. I suppose this is a side of the master We don't like much. Tell me about his grace and tell me about his love and tell me about his acceptance and all the rest. But do not tell me about his wrath. I'm afraid we must. Here it is. Woe to you. His words, not mine. I don't have the authority to pronounce woe on anyone. He surely does. Woe to you. Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. Why? Well, for if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, or Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in the sign of repentance, sackcloth and ashes. Tyre and Sidon, Gentile cities, pagan cities on the Mediterranean coast, Phoenician cities, worshippers of false deities, uh, people exposed to far less privilege than the residents of Chorazin. If they had been exposed, says the Lord, to that which you have seen, they would have repented long ago. Woe to you, says he. Chorazin, Bethsaida, woe to you. Folks, it's an exclamation of doom. But it is mingled, I think, with his sorrow. You see, he came to save those which are lost. It grieved him that this, however, might be the fate of those who rejected his offer of salvation. 
Nevertheless, says he, verse 22, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, you know of that wicked city. If the miracles which you have seen had occurred there, Sodom, the Sodomites would have remained to this day. What is he saying to Capernaum? You will not be exalted to heaven. You see, this is a place of great privilege. The Lord made his residence there for, for, for the better part of three years. I have to tell you, it was the most wonderful, most blessed spot on earth during that time. Can you imagine it? Who is your neighbor? The king of kings. He lived there. But he says, you must not think Merely on that basis, you will be exalted to heaven. Why did the Lord so strongly denounce these cities? Look, verse 24. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Why such a strong denunciation of these three cities? It's because they were given greater opportunity than others. And greater opportunity brings with it greater responsibility. Imagine the king of the universe came to them daily. The king of the universe, transcendent deity, stooped, came, walked, spoke, performed miracles. They saw the king of the universe in their streets. Every day, look out the window. There is King Jesus. Great privilege, great opportunity. People witness the very power of God right there in their neighborhoods for the better part of three years. And yet it all seemed to make no difference in their lives. Nothing. The Lord Jesus didn't have a bad day and arbitrarily consign these people to destruction. No, it wasn't like that at all, don't you see? By rejecting him, the deliverer from destruction, uh, the residents of these three cities, in effect, chose for themselves the fate of destruction. All three Galilean cities, all three Jewish cities, in spite of their greater light, uh, rejected the Messiah. And today, go there. They're all three in ruins. There's nothing there. Ruins. In contrast to these three Jewish cities are the three Gentile cities mentioned in this text. Tyre and Sidon and Sodom. Pagan cities Terribly wicked cities. However, do you realize it was not the wickedness of these three Gentile cities that would keep them out of heaven, nor was it the perhaps lesser wickedness of the three Jewish cities that would gain them entrance into heaven. You see, it's not about that. It's about one's response to the Savior who is the way to heaven. We have all sinned. Do you know that? 
You've got to know that. If you have lived with yourself for more than about two and a half seconds, you've got to know you're included in that. We have all sinned. And though it is true that perhaps some have committed more striking sin, more dramatic, Uh, more glaring examples of their inherent sinfulness than perhaps others, uh, really, with regard to our eternal destiny, that is irrelevant, one having committed less sin than another. What's relevant is how one, since we all have sinned, has responded to the Savior from the penalty of sin. That's the bottom line. It's not the degree of our sin. You've heard people say, I'm not so bad. My neighbor is worse. Maybe. It doesn't matter. We're not graded on any curve. We're not compared to one another. We're stacked up against the unapproachable holiness of God. How you doing? You fail. We're evaluated on the basis of our adherence to his commandments. How you doing? You fail. All have sinned and fall short. Oh, not of the standards of the next door neighbor. All have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. So, yeah, I think there was greater wickedness in these three Gentile cities, but there was greater indifference for sure in these three Jewish cities. And what's the difference? Did you know sin doesn't keep anybody out of heaven? Whether it's the sin of blatant wickedness, whether it's the sin of indifference, sin doesn't keep anybody out of heaven. It's rejection of the Savior that keeps people out of heaven. Sometimes people ask the question, have you ever been uh, uh, approached with this question? Uh, You're sharing your faith with someone. That person says, what about the one who has not heard the name of Jesus? Have you heard that one? Stops you in your track. It's a good question. There are answers to it. We could talk about it sometime. What about the one who's not heard the name of Jesus? But I think for our purposes tonight, there's another question of greater relevance. It's this. What happens to people who have heard of Jesus and who have rejected him? Thanks for coming tonight. You put yourself in jeopardy by doing so. You now, surely not for the first time, but certainly at least for the first time, are now without excuse. You've heard the name of Jesus. I'll worry about the person eons away on the other side of the world who's not been exposed in the name of Jesus later. Thanks for your concern. But right now you ought to be concerned for you. What's your response to the name of Jesus? There's an answer. What happens to the one who's not heard of his name? But what's the answer to the question? What happens to the one who has freely and repeatedly, just like the residents of those three cities, what happens to the one who has freely and repeatedly heard of the salvation work of the Lord Jesus and yet has rejected him? Well, this passage gives the answer. Those who have heard of Jesus freely and repeatedly and yet who have rejected him will experience the same woes as those pronounced upon 
Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, your life, you, will end up in ruins. Not my words, his. Woe to you. I'm a privileged person, uh, born and raised in this country. Really, really blessed to be born and raised in this country. And even before I caught up with the Savior, well, even before he caught me up into his arms, I heard of him. Though from an Orthodox Jewish background in the foreign country of Brooklyn, New York, Still, I was exposed to the name of Jesus. Why? Because the people who've gone before me, veterans of many wars, and who value this flag, uh, provided for me, appropriated for me, the freedom to think, the freedom to worship, and the freedom to practice my religion. And so I would go about and see other Uh, faith groups, churches all over, people wearing crosses, uh, people revering this Jesus. I'm a privileged person. I'm not that mysterious person on the far side of the globe who's not heard the name of Jesus. I cannot use that as an excuse. I can't say I'm from New York. I'm Jewish. I've never... Yes, I have heard many, many times... I know I've heard because I used to use his name in vain. I didn't say, oh, Buddha. I know the name of Jesus. And that privilege brought with it great responsibility, which leads me in closing to the life lesson, which I think we can derive from our visit to Chorazin. It's this greater revelation of Jesus means Greater responsibility to Jesus. Greater revelation of Jesus. That's you. That's me. We're born here. Thus far, we have freely been able to hear the proclamation of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are without excuse. We are a privileged people. I know it could be forfeited and we ought to pray against it. But thus far, we are a privileged people. We've had repeated exposure to the good news of a pardon obtained for us by the shed blood of the one who was pierced through on a cross and then rose up from death. That's not new. Christmas season is coming. Every American will respond to it in one way or the other. Even the most secularized has still yet, hopefully, some notion of what it ultimately represents. Birth of the babe of Bethlehem. That's a great privilege and opportunity, but it brings great responsibility. Do you mind me saying you and I are without excuse? I can't, as we all shall, one day stand before him. I can't, you can't, and say, the reason I haven't given you more of me if that is that I've heard so little of you. He will say no. He will say, you're an American. 
I've blessed America. And the primary blessing is that the gospel has, at least up until now, gone forth from shore to shore, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. All kinds of denominations, all kinds of singing, all kinds of praises, all kinds of evangelism, all kinds of radio programs and television programs, all kinds of mass crusades. Who here doesn't know of Billy Graham? I can't stand before him and say, I didn't give you more of me because I had so little revelation of you. No, I'll be without excuse. Corazine spooks me. I have a responsibility as a privileged American. Born in this country. An American who's received the privilege of great revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. I have to tell you, he might as well have manifested his mighty works in the streets of America just as he did in Chorazin. That's just how evident he is. Only the proudest and most arrogant among us deny the reality of Christ. Come on, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So I owe. You owe. Greater revelation brings greater responsibility. My fellow Christians, we have got to give him everything. For he has withheld from us, perhaps to a fuller extent than any people group on earth, us Americans, he has withheld nothing. We can argue over Bible translations and just the possibility of the argument tells me how privileged we are. Masses of people worldwide have no one Bible. I got a dozen. Greater revelation begets greater responsibility. I don't want to ruin my time. I don't want to withhold finances, gifts, convictions, obedience, thinking. I'll be able to tell him I didn't know, I didn't know, I didn't know. I know plenty. So do you. Great revelation begets great responsibility. And so for those of you who don't even really know uh, uh, what I'm talking about, because you're not yet in the fold, not yet in the fold, not yet adopted, not yet a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. For those of you who have not yet repented, remember, changed your attitude, your posture towards the Lord Jesus. You going down, him going up. You opening up your heart, him coming in. You coming to him just as you are a sinner uh, to him just as he is the Savior. For those of you who have not done that, you have not yet repented. What are you going to say to him? And surely you must give an account. Don't you see you won't be able to say, oh, I didn't know of you. Yes, you do. You know of him. He's the Christ of the Christmas. (laughs) Yeah. Jesus loves me this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Everyone here knows that. 
So I beseech you. Take advantage of what has been revealed to you, even tonight, and yield. The totality of your being while there's time. Things are happening at such a rapid clip. I'm both um, disoriented and excited. I don't want to be here forever. Bring it on. But my head is spinning by it all. It's happening at such a rapid clip on the political scene, on the international scene. My, 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 my. Wow, wow, wow. I don't, I don't, I don't know what our time frame is, but, 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 but I know we're closer to his return today than we were yesterday. Are you ready? What are you gonna do? What are you gonna, oh, I'm not as bad as the people in Tyre and Sidon and Sodom. The sin of indifference can separate just as much as the sin of blatant, blatant wickedness. Doesn't matter. Jewish city, Gentile city, big deal. Sin separates. What are you going to say? I didn't know. I didn't know. Nobody spelled it out. You can't do that. You're an American. You've heard the gospel. We're so blessed and privileged. The gospel means good news. What's better news than the debt you owe has been paid in full by the blood of the Messiah? I don't know of better news. I'm debt free. I don't owe God except the sacrifice of praise. So I beseech you before tonight, and you forgive me for being a little dramatic, but this is serious. Thirteen people, our pastor spoke to us today in uh, such a striking way. They were ushered into eternity. Boom. Some in the presence of the Lord, we hope. Maybe some not. We don't, we don't know. Boom. Young people. They didn't live full lives. That's just how serious it is. The more disorganized the world gets, the more disordered, uh, the more I find it makes sense to respond to the clearest most orchestrated, most premeditated, most benevolent, most gracious, most clear opportunity given to us on earth. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, burdened down, I'll give you rest. And there is salvation in no other name that has been given among men, by which we must be saved. I am the truth, the way, the life. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who hears my word, you just did, and believes him who sent me, I hope you will. What do you get? Has eternal life. And has passed out of judgment. You are without excuse. Lord Jesus, we know your name. And it's beautiful, but also a fearful enterprise to dismiss it, as did the residents of Chorazin. I don't think we need more signs and miracles, though we would welcome those. There's enough evidence of you coming, dying, rising, coming again, for us to respond. So in the power of your spirit, 
I pray you would convict the one, the two, the more tonight of sin's separation from you. A person knows whether they're redeemed or not. It's not a question. It ought to remain in people's minds. Please, Lord Jesus, in the power of your spirit, let it become a settled matter tonight. Let no one, blatant, wicked one, or comfortably indifferent one, leave you behind like the folks of Chorazin. Lord, your message is one of mercy, only as a consequence, one of woe and denunciation. We don't want that to befall any here. And what's more, neither do you, for you desire for none to perish, but for all to be saved. Savior, would you do your work of salvation even tonight? This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.